So we're going to do a short meditation to get a feeling of the continuity of consciousness. So be aware of uh, being a conscious being today, having mind that is clear and cognizant, that experiences. And then ask yourself, what's the cause of this mind today? And what we can point to is the mind of yesterday. That was also clear and cognizant. That perceived objects, experienced feelings, had motivations and so on. And what was the cause of the mind of yesterday? The mind of the day before. So we can remember Tuesday and we there was the presence of the mind that which is clear and cognizant, that perceives and experiences. And then, what was the cause of that mind? Uh, the mind of the day before. So, maybe think the mind of last week, so we don't have to go day by day. may not remember everything that happened last week, but you know that there was consciousness and perception and feeling and thoughts and experience. And if we go further back in the continuity of the mind of last week, we have the mind of last month. And then the mind of last year. We may not remember exactly what we were doing on February 21st, 2019. We were in retreat. You know there was consciousness then. That all these moments of consciousness are connected in a causal way. Each one arises due to the previous moment. And the consciousness of last year came from the mind of the year before. And that came from the mind of five years ago. 
And that's from the mind of 10 years ago. And so take a minute or two and jump some time and go back to when you were a young adult and there was consciousness there as a teenager, as a child. Get a sense of this continuity of clarity and cognizance with each moment arising from the preceding moment and yet different from the preceding moment. And then think back to being maybe three years old. There was clarity and cognizance then too. Not a lot of intellectual ability some verbal skill, but not so much. So the mind of the three-year-old is a continuity of the mind of today, but it was also very different than the mind of today. The mind of the three-year-old is a continuity of when you were an infant. With a very different body, a very different kind of mind, but also continuity. And the consciousness of the infant goes to the back to the consciousness of the baby that just came out of our mother's womb. This consciousness there, we may not remember what was going on. We certainly don't have, didn't have the cognitive abilities then, and the ability to name and understand our experience. But there were certainly experiences, feelings, perceptions. And then think of what it was like to be in the womb. There was consciousness there too. Consciousness that was sensitive to the vibration, to, vi to movement. Consciousness that felt hunger, felt uh, sensation, tactile sensations, touch, softness and hardness. mental consciousness that didn't know how to uh, verbalize. But there were definitely thoughts and perceptions all that time in the womb. The consciousness of the embryo goes back to the consciousness of the zygote that goes 
back to the consciousness that first joined with this permanent. That very first moment of joining with the seeds from our parents. Now, where did that first moment of consciousness come from? That first moment in this life. What was its cause? Where did it come from? In the previous moments, before it joined with the sperm egg. So it came from the mind of the bardo being. That mind came, its cause was the last moment of the previous life, the consciousness in that last moment of the previous life. Now, where did the sense of I come from? Was the being that was just fertilized, the being in the bardo, the being in the previous life, was there a sense of I? Where did that sense of I come from? And what was that I? Strange, isn't it? Who is, was that person? And where did that sense of personhood come from? And what exactly does it refer to? But did you get a sense of the mind being a continuity? Even though it's actually very different from one moment to the next, you know, perceiving different things, experiencing different things. Even the sense of I changes, it's not always the same. Although it feels like there's one person who just goes on. So something to to think about a little bit, but, you know, get that sense of there just being a continuity. But you really can't pinpoint a person on that continuity, can you? Because who we think we are today with this body and this mind didn't exist then at all. It's completely different, totally different. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so 
one person uh, said, last week you challenged us to think about what it means for the appearance of objects to arise in the mind, what is actually happening. But instead of answering the question, that person came back with another question to me, which I'm not going to answer, (laughs) because I think we have to, you know, uh, get look inward a little bit and see what we think. So did you, you know, kind of explore that thing? What does it mean? Like your eyes are open right now, looking at something. So where is that appearance? Yeah, It looks like it's out there, doesn't it? Yeah. And we relate to it like it's out there. But that appearance exists in the mind. It doesn't exist as something totally unrelated to the consciousness, does it? Because without the consciousness perceiving something, this appearance wouldn't be there. And yet, when we perceive it, it feels like it's out there waiting for us to perceive it existing on its own. But actually, it's, it's not. And it's strange, you know, I mean, when you touch something hard, it feels like, okay, the hardness is out here. But is the hardness really something out there that we're touching? Or is the hardness uh, a sensation that arises in the tactile consciousness. Yeah, it seems like it's out there, but it's arising in the tactile consciousness. And where in the world is the tactile consciousness? (laughs) Yeah. So it's funny, you know, like when you say you're, you know, I'm hungry, then you get kind of a mental picture of some kind of blob shape in here, you know? And we say stomach, and that the hunger is like there. But what is it? I mean, is hunger floating around inside my stomach? Where exactly is that hunger? And, you know, oh, the hunger's there in the stomach. But what happens if the stomach moves over there and the hunger moves over there? So interesting to to think about, you know, how we think things are out there, you know, totally unrelated, but what, you know... There's a relationship with our mind. And each one of us, we're sitting in the same room, but we're each seeing different things because we're sitting in different places. So there's some common shared experience, but all of us are seeing different things. (laughs) And where are the different things that we're seeing? Is there one slide in in this brain and another slide in 
everybody else's brain. Where in the world, you know, is the cognition happening in the brain? Where really are these, you know, are these things that we're perceiving? And if we were a fly with a fly's sense organs, yeah, the whole thing would look totally different. Yeah, because I don't, I forget, but they have like, they can see all sorts of different pictures of the thing at one time and in the sides and different places. And, and what a fly is seeing is totally different. Yeah. And I imagine what the kitties are seeing is also different too. Because, you know, you learn to pick out different details from the environment. And if you have a fly consciousness or a kitty consciousness or human consciousness, you're going to pick out different things. And the whole scenario is going to look different to you. So try and ponder that some more. You know, look at your own experience. Get a, a sense of you know, we have human mind, but human mind is just, you know, that's just this lifetime. Uh, you get the mind of another being, and it's going to perceive things differently. Plus, you get the sense organs of, you know, a, another being from a different realm or, you know, kind of body. and perceive something very, very different. And just think if you were a fly and somebody came in the room and called you all sorts of names. Yeah. Life wouldn't bother you at all. <laughs> yeah. Somebody came in and said, you're impeached. Buzz, buzz, buzz. You know? It's like, it doesn't mean anything. Somebody comes in and says, you're an idiot. You're a jerk. Or I love you. You know? And your mind, the conceptual ability of the mind, doesn't understand the, the meaning of those words as a human being does. You know? It senses some kind of sound of vibration. And who knows what a fly or a grasshopper cognizes when, when we speak. Yeah? Well, you know, the chapter that Jay Garfield asked us to read in Engaging Buddhism is about just this. Oh. The question of um, not just how do you know your experience, but how do you know the you that is having an experience? Mm. And one point, I'm slowly working on the chapter. It's difficult to read. But one point he makes that struck me was he said, is the moment you reify an external object, you are immediately reifying a self. Oh, that's yeah. knowing it, right? It's like, oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh -huh. You know, and, and when you talk about continuity of consciousness, conceptually, I'm still thinking of some real thing that's maybe a bit more like the yoga char, like producing those moments. Yeah. This I that's, you know. Because <laughs> in there, he talks too about maybe, con I mean, about consciousness being a relational property. And I'm mm -hmm. like, 
I was so shocked to just read those words. Like, huh? Yeah. No, it must be somewhere. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> ah. It must be somewhere where you can draw a line on it, and it exists by itself, and everything it perceives is out there waiting to be, be perceived. Yeah, it's all out there in concrete, you know, in uh, static, like, you know, some kind of static form. And then we bump into it and perceive it. <laughs> of course, it's not like that. Okay, so we're on page 167, the section that says the nature of mind, right? Because we're usually so preoccupied with the objects of the consciousness that we don't know what the consciousness that's doing the perceiving, experiencing, feeling. We have no idea what that thing is because we're so hooked on to what seems to be external objects. But how external are they? So, while we may easily say the words, the mind is mere clarity and cognizance, it is difficult to actually have a notion of what the mind is, let alone to perceive its clear and cognizant nature. Although the clarity and cognizance of the mind are present in every moment of mental activity, we are not aware of them. Yeah, I mean, think of it in 24 hours a day, how much are we aware of the mind as a cognitive thing in the process of cognition? Okay. So what prevents our awareness of these things? A consciousness is usually identified in relation to an object. The visual consciousness perceiving blue or the mental consciousness thinking about a table. When a consciousness engages with its object, it appears in the aspect of that object. Okay, just a saying in the case of the visual perception, scientists also speak of the aspect of the object appearing on the retina. But can an aspect of an object actually appear on a retina? Doesn't there need to be consciousness for there to be an appearance or for the appearance? I mean, how do you know there's appearance on the retina if there's no consciousness perceiving that appearance? Yeah. Like if somebody's died but the eyes are open, yeah, is there still appearance on the retina? No. But it sounds funny, doesn't it? An, what does it mean that there's an appearance on the retina? Yeah? <laughs> there's got to be a mind in there somewhere. Okay. Because of the mind's involvement with that object, it is obscured from perceiving the actual nature of the mind. That's what I meant by we're so hypnotized by external objects that 
we're unaware of the mind that is cognizing what that mind is. We're just, we're really like junkies on objects of the senses. And, you know, when they call it the, the desire realm, when you really think about it, wow, we are definitely in the desire realm, aren't we? Because this one object after another appearing to the mind. And with each of them, there's the assessment of, is it beautiful and I grab it, or is it ugly and I push it away? Or is it neutral and, and I just ignore it? Yeah? So completely, you know, latched on to the objects, the external objects. evaluating them, judging them, making plans with them, having opinions about them. And then, you know, how inaccurate, once we throw in the distorted conception, remember that mental factor that starts making stories about what we perceive, and boy, you know, we really go off into la-la land, don't we? Huh? And yet we think the whole thing's real. I was thinking about the president today and, you know, how every day there's something in the news. There's, there's never just a day when nothing happens with him or that pr- things proceed kind of calmly. Every single day there's some perceived crisis or some perceived harm or suspicion or something. Yeah? Yeah, it's not like anything can just kind of flow along in a moderate way. Every every day there's, I like, I don't like, I want, I don't want, this is good, this is bad. I was thinking, well, you know, I mean, it's called the desire realm for something, isn't it? And so he exemplifies that, but, you know, we're in the same thing. Yeah? We're in the same thing. We're just suspicious of different things. <laughs> yeah, and nobody's reporting on us. We're left out. Nobody wants to put everything I say on, on the web. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. So the mind is usually invaded by a host of constructive and destructive thoughts that concern external objects and people we have perceived or experienced. These cloud the clear and cognizant nature of the mind, preventing us from perceiving it. When the thought the flow of thoughts slows down, it is possible to see into the depths of the mind it's clear and cognizant nature that is like a still pool of water. You know, what I find is when I read things like this, because, 
you know, when we're communicating with each other, we always have to use words that relate to some commonly experienced uh, external object. Yeah. Otherwise, we don't really know if we're communicating about a same experience or not. But once you think of, you know, it's clear and cognizant nature that is like a still pool of water, then we start thinking, at least my mind visualizes a still pool of water as if that were my consciousness. (laughs) You know, which of course it's not. But what is a consciousness that is like a still pool of water? Can you think of that without thinking of a still pool of water? (laughs) So it's it's really kind of kind of strange, you know, when we we think or we even say the flow of consciousness, the stream of consciousness. We get an image of again. You know, oh, there's my consciousness. You know, this thing that's kind of flowing along there. One technique for discovering the conventional nature of the mind is to prevent the mind from arising in the aspect of those objects and to stop all conceptual thoughts regarding past and future events. Gee, sounds easy, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to stop all my thoughts about past and future events. Yeah, what am I going to do in the next moment? <laughs> and why did you look at me like that the moment before? <laughs> you know, how do we do that? To do this, first generate a strong determination not to let your mind be disturbed by sense perceptions such as sounds or thoughts. Yeah. Like, okay, not going to, you know, let my mind run after different sounds or different thoughts or different physical sensations. Let your mind rest without being overrun by sensory perceptions or ideas. At first, it may seem that more thoughts than usual arise, but this is not the case. It is simply that in your daily life, you do not pay much attention to how many thoughts there are. I often ask people when I do public talks, you know, when you left the front door of your home till you arrived at your workplace, what did you think about? however long that commute was, what did you think about? What were all the different things you thought about during that commute? How are we even aware? From when you left your room or where you were to when you came here, do you know what you were thinking about on the walk here? Do you remember? little bit. How about when you were walking to lunch? Do you remember what you were thinking then? (laughs) 
continuing to meditate in this way, you will gradually be able to keep the mind at a distance from sense objects, and the barrage of thoughts will diminish and eventually cease. By the mind not arising in the aspect of those objects, the clear nature of the mind will become apparent. So again, I get this feeling, you know, I close my eyes. Okay, yeah, I picture, you know, there's a balloon and there's a cat and there's the cat food and, you know, there's this and that. And then, okay, all of that's going to arise, disappear. And now I'm going to see the clear nature of the mind. And then I visualize something clear in front, thinking, do you do that? Yeah? The clear nature of the mind. So, okay. Yeah, so there's something clear there. Yeah? So, yeah, kind of here, you know? As if my mind's hanging out in front of my head. And I'm looking at the clear nature of that mind that is out in front of my head. When you experience your mind in the absence of thoughts about the past and the future, you will have a sense of vacuity, which is the gap between the mind and those objects. So there's consciousness, but yeah, there's no, you're not having some object appear to your, to your mental consciousness, you know, that you're thinking about remembering in some way. This vacuity is not the ultimate nature of the mind, the mind's emptiness of inherent existence. Nor is it nothingness, as in blank-minded meditation. Once you experience that vacuous state of mind, try to meditate or remain in it. Eventually, you will have a feeling that the mind is something like a mirror with infinite dimensions. Okay, so now that clear thing (laughs) turned into a mirror, you know, with like gazillions of, you know, how how you see it with little mirrors that are echoing and and seeing many different things. Yeah, yeah. Because we always relate descriptions to physical things. At that time, Yeah, so the mind is something like a mirror with infinite dimensions. At that time, the nature of the mind itself is clear. Yet, whenever the mind contacts an object, a reflection immediately arises. Where? Because as soon as we hear reflection, it's got to occupy a physical space. So where is it? <laughs> so when so are you aware of your retina? Are you kind of turning your eyes, you know, because before you had that clear thing in front and then it became a mirror. And now you know, you got to turn your eyeball back and watch the, the retina. <laughs> How are you going to see that? <laughs> okay. 
Okay, whenever the mind contacts an object, an reflection immediately arises. In this way, understand the mirror-like clarity of the mind. The mind remains clear by nature, even though reflections of phenomena may appear in it. Okay, so now there's this kind of clear thing that's also a mirror, and it's reflecting a lot of things, so there's a lot of stuff there. It's no longer clear. Yeah, because it's everything in front that's being reflected. You know, plus I'm trying to look at the back of my room. (laughs) Okay. The mind remains clear by nature, even though reflections of phenomena may appear in it. So you can see when we're meditating on the conventional nature of the mind, we got to get rid of all these images that are coming to our mind through the words. Yeah. Because the, the image, the images are just images. They're not the nature of the mind. In addition, practice being aware of the moment when you are just beginning to sleep and the moment just after waking up. At both these times, the cognitive faculties are not fully engaged. In the moment just after waking up, sleep has ceased. Your mind is in a neutral state, not crowded with thoughts and emotions. If your physical condition is normal and fresh, you may have some feeling of the clarity of mind at that time. Try to remain in that state, although it is not easy. Experiment with this and see what happens. Some experience of the mind should come, perhaps even an experience of the grosser level of clear light. Oh, goody, I'm going to see the clear light. Okay, where is it? Where is it? Oh, it's going on that side. i got to get it in the middle. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, so try doing it when you're just falling asleep, when you're just waking up. Having some experience of the conventional nature of the mind is valuable. For knowing that mind exists, which helps you to understand the continuity of mind from one life to the next. It also gives you a better idea uh, of what it is meant when we say that Dharma practice is about working with our mind. Although meditating on the clear nature of the mind is not a unique Buddhist practice, Oh, I thought it was. Oh, it's not a unique Buddhist practice? Why not? You feel a little bit let down? (laughs) And jine, you know, serenity isn't a Buddhist practice either. A strictly Buddhist practice. Okay, so although meditating in the clear nature of the mind is not a unique Buddhist practice, 
It is common with Hindus and perhaps some other religious traditions as well. It is useful for showing us another aspect of our experience. Yeah, we can get some sense of that conventional nature of the mind. Whoa. Some years back, I did a one-month retreat in Ladakh, India. When I meditate, I usually have a statue of the Buddha in front of me. The Buddha is my boss, a very loving and gentle boss. This particular statue was painted gold, and while colorful areas in general are attractive and can stir up the mind, the gold had come off uh, of one part of the statue. Initially, I focused my mind at this more neutral area where the gold paint had come off. Then I lowered my eyes, let go of memories of the past, and stopped imagining and planning the future. Eventually, a little experience of the clarity and cognizance of the mind came. This is an experience we are not saying to ourselves in words. The mind is clear and cognizant. <laughs> oh yeah, I got it. There it is. <laughs> it's clear and cognizant in the back of my retina. <laughs> With that little glimpse, I was then able to be aware of when my mind began following a sound or chasing a thought. I could recognize where the mind was going and what was distracting it, as well as when it was at rest, clear and concentrated. But after that one-month retreat, I resumed my usual busy duties and came back to my original state. Nevertheless, this experience was valuable. Okay. So that's a good meditation to try and do. Yeah? Experiment with it a little bit this week and, and see what you get. Okay. The next section is called Rebirth, Past and Future Lives. The mind of each individual forms its own continuum with one moment of mind producing the next moment of mind. So don't think that Moments of mind are like beads on a mala. There's one moment of mind, next moment of mind, next moment of mind, and they're all kind of separate. Or like a slide, uh, you know, on um, uh, what is it, like a, a movie camera? How, you know, they used to have individual f- slides, and it looked like a continuum because they they played it very fast. You know, yeah, the frames. So don't think of your moments of mind as. You know, these individual, isolated, separate frames that are just going real fast and you get this sense of, of continuity. Yeah, But this is how we think, isn't it? We hear one moment of mind and we think of, you know, there it is, kind of there, and it has a certain length to it, and it's right up against another moment. They're, they're right next to each other. Really? Yeah? Are one moment are moments of mind next to each other? Does one stop? Can you find the space?
between one moment of mind and the next moment of mind? Is there some space between them? Because if you say they're next to each other, then there has to be some space. Or if they touch each other, you know, then they just form one thing and they're not different moments of mind. So do you have different moments of mind or do they, you know? How does this all work? And can you stop the camera so that the frames just stop at some point? Unfortunately, no, those frames just keep going on. There's no way to press a stop button on them. And they're also not frames, and you can't isolate each individual moment. Yeah. And then you say, well, no, you can't, because they're all in these individual frames of, you know, some kind of however long a nanosecond is. And it has a beginning and a middle and an end. Yeah, so each moment of these, my, my mind, all these little moments, you know, right? One after the other. And each one has a beginning, middle, and end. But then each beginning has a beginning, middle, and end. And each middle has a beginning, middle, and end. And each end part of that one has a beginning, middle, and end. And then each of those also have beginning, middle, and ends. So where, uh, when does your mind happen? Yeah, when, when is the present moment of mind? Yeah, because we do that and it's like, okay, I, right there, there it was. It was right there, but no, it wasn't because now I'm on to another moment of mind. We think, oh, moment of mind, you know, something I can, like, isolate and pick out and make, you know, it's different from everything else. It's arising, abiding, and ceasing. Every moment, arising, abiding, ceasing, rising, abiding, ceasing, rising, abiding, ceasing, ceasing. But arising has arising, abiding, ceasing. And middle has arising, abiding, ceasing. And end has arising, abiding, ceasing. And how do they stick together? How do I get all these moments of mind to stick together? How come they don't just fall apart? And when exactly is that present moment of mind that they're always telling me to stay in? Yeah, when is it? Okay, there it is. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Present moment. <laughs> it's gone. So the mind of each individual forms its own continuum. All these little moments of mind glued together. Yeah. Are they sticky in between? How long is where the space where the glue is? <laughs> it sticks one moment of mind to the next. Yeah. 
with one moment of mind producing the next moment of mind. And then they tell me that each moment of mind is arising, abiding, and ceasing at the same time. What? Those three things are totally different. How can they occur at the same time? As an impermanent phenomena, the mind is produced by causes that precede it. The substantial cause of one moment of mind, the main cause that actually transforms into that resultant next moment of mind, is the previous moment of mind in the same continuum. Can we kind of mix up continuums like you know, if my continuum's going here and your continuum's going, do they sometimes collide and I pick up a few frames from yours and shed a few frames from mine? <laughs> yeah. Where are all these continuums? And they're all in the present moment, but where in the present moment are they? And how big is the present moment? Although the gross body and gross mind influence each other, they cannot be the substantial cause of each other because they do not share the same nature. And they are not in the same continuum because one is a continuum of of form, one is a continuum of of, uh, mind. The body is material in nature and the mind is not. Dharmakirti tells us from Pramnavartika chapter 2 that we know that which is not a consciousness itself cannot be the substantial cause for another consciousness. But it also has to be that which is not a consciousness itself cannot be the substantial cause for another consciousness in the same continuum. Because one moment of my consciousness cannot be the substantial cause for the next moment of your consciousness. So this can be understood by three principles of causality from a Sangha's compendium of knowledge. So we, uh, in this series of books, we mentioned this these three points uh, several times. Yeah. So first one, an effect cannot arise without a cause, and every effect is preceded by its own cause. So there is no absolute creator that is the original source of all existence, because such a creator would not have a cause and would have arisen causelessly which is impossible. So this, that first principle, that an, every effect, or that an effect cannot rise without a cause, and every effect has a cause, this refutes causeless arising or causeless production. Okay. So it also refutes any idea of some uh, external creator. Yeah. Because if the external creator created, then what, what caused that moment of creation? 
there had to have been a previous moment. And what caused that? A previous moment and a previous moment. And, you know, there, there, then you have some external creator that how are you, can you point to some beginning to it? Yeah. When did that external creator start and what caused it? And what made it change its mind? You know, that before there was nothing. Yeah. What is, no, what does the Bible say? There was nothing and then there was the word. In the beginning was the word. But what happened before the beginning that made the word come into existence? And what, in the, and what word was it? Was it I? <laughs> was that the word? The second. What? God's first word, oops. What in the world did I just do? Now I gotta deal with this mess I created. I'll fire them all. And tell them all to resign. Okay, then the second point. An effect cannot arise from a permanent cause. So an effect must arise from a cause, but it can't arise from a cause that is permanent because permanent phenomena do not change, and to produce an effect, change is necessary. The cause must cease for the effect to arise. So there's no such thing as a permanent cause. Yeah, permanent causes go in the same bucket with, you know, what? The sky flowers and and weapons of mass destruction in New in, I was going to say in New York, in Iraq, and you know, turtles' mustaches and rabbits' horns and all those kind of things. There's no such thing as a permanent cause because everything. You know, it has to have a cause. And the cause has to go out of existence for the result to arise. The cause cannot exist at the same time as the, as the result. Yeah. So think about that for a while, you know. Everything has to cease for the next moment to appear. So we look around and it's like that banister looks like it's the same from one moment to the next. But it's not. One moment of the banister is ceasing and giving rise to the next moment of the banister. But you can you point at the time that one moment that moment one of the banister ceases and moment two arises. And what about the arising and abiding and disintegrating of one moment of the banister? So everything is, we can't pick up the constant change with our senses. Our senses are too gross. We need a whole series of 
moments of sense stimuli to to have a cognition of something. And yet, and then when we finally get it, it looks like that thing is fixed. But it's not, you know. It had all these moments that preceded it. And it, too, is changing in each moment. Okay? And every time that a new moment of something is arising, the own moment is ceasing, 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 ceasing. Yeah? And where does it go when it ceases? When a moment of something ceases, where does it go? Huh? Do we ha- do we have a, an alternative universe with all the ceased moments of everything? <laughs> so all the the moments of the banister from yesterday exist somewhere, together with all the moments of all of us from yesterday. <laughs> yeah. But where where in the world would that exist? And when would it exist? Yeah. Is there some place, yeah, where we can find all this stuff that happened in the past and go back and clean it up and make it look different? Yeah. Where did it go when it ceased? Yeah, but we but we think of one moment, you know, as as a distinct moment. So if it has to cease, the new moment is a new moment. What happened to that old one? Did the old one become the new one? But doesn't become mean that it ceased and something new arose in its place? Because we can't say that the old moment became the new moment because then it would be both the old moment and the new moment at the same time. The old moment has to cease for the new one to arise. So where in the world did it go? Yeah? We have such vivid memories of things from the past. Where are... Where is that person we were in the past? Where are the people that we remember in a situation in the past? Where is all of that right now at this moment? None of it is happening, is it? It's all gone. Gone, gone, gone. There's nowhere where we can go and find it again. Yeah? It's it's gone. So why do we hang on so much to the past? And what we're hanging on to is only the the conceptual appearances to a conceptual consciousness. We think when we remember something that somehow we're remembering that exact event. We're not, you know, we're creating something new in our mind. 
that maybe in some way resembles the past event, but probably in a lot of ways doesn't resemble the past event. First of all, because we didn't even notice everything that was going on in that past event to be able to remember it all. Yeah, people sometimes when when I give a talk and they're trying to point out a person to me, oh, that person who sat on your right who was wearing a yellow shirt. I have no idea. I, You know, I'm looking at the audience for how long. I do not notice who's wearing yellow and who's wearing blue and, you know, who who's on the left and the right. Yeah, I look at all these people. I can't remember any of them afterwards. Sometimes people come up and say, oh, I was the one who asked you the question about da-da-da. Which talk was that? How many years ago was that? (laughs) Oh, it's just this talk. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, because when I speak, I have to, like, pay exact attention to what's happening. And so my memory, you know, I can remember what I said, but what's going on in the room, I can't remember, you know, who's sitting with their legs crossed and who's wearing pink with chartreuse polka dots, you know? You only notice certain things. Okay, then the third is a cause must have the potential to produce a particular effect. Okay, so an effect can ar- cannot arise from a discordant cause. It can only arise from a co- concordant cause. So a concordant cause is one that has the potential to produce that kind of effect. Okay, so how did the peach tree grow? It, it grew from a peach seed. It didn't grow from a plum seed or an apple seed because those are discordant causes. They can't cause a peach tree. But not just any old peach tree can cause that peach tree that's growing right in that place. It has to be the, the specific peach tree, peach seed, that was planted there that grew into that tree. It can't just be any old beach seed. Yeah. So there's some, you know, something quite specific about cause and effect in the sense that it's it's not kind of random and, you know, all over the place. Daisies cannot grow from tomato seeds. The substantial cause of form is a previous is previous moments of of matter or energy, and the substantial cause of mind is previous moments of mind. These last two principles refute cases of impossible production. A permanent cause cannot produce a result, and a discordant cause something that does not have the ability to produce a particular result, cannot produce that result. So that's very good to think about when we meditate on karma. 
you know, that if we want the result of happiness, it has to come from a concordant cause, which is a virtuous action. Yeah, it's never going to come from a discordant cause. So doing non-virtue and hoping for the best is not going to work. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I just do some non-virtue now, and then I just kind of hope for the best at the time of death, like all your non-virtues suddenly going to transform into virtue and bring happiness. Yeah. That's like planting onion bulbs and expecting to get tulips. Yeah. The onions, tulips can't grow from the onions. Applying these principles to the arising of consciousness, we find that the sperm and egg, which are the substantial causes of the body, are unsuitable to be the substantial cause of mind, which is not form. So this is important. Yeah, There's no way that consciousness which lacks form, even though we're visualizing it as there's that clear thing and there's that stream flowing by and there's that mirror, you know, because the consciousness is not any kind of form, so it can't come from the body. The substantial cause of the sperm and egg can be traced back to the Big Bang or to space particles, if we use the Buddhist paradigm. Buddhists talk about, you know, the evolution and devolution of, of, uh, of universes. And between one universe and another, there's the space particles that exist that somehow have the potency of the other particles. Don't ask me to explain more than that. Okay. See if you can find someone else who explains how that works. Okay, so the but you can see the substantial cause of the sperm and the egg can be traced back to the Big Bang. Yeah. So this thing that we treasure so much that we don't want to be separated from, this thing that we think is the cause of our happiness, you know, is made up of things that are descendants from recombinated, uh, recombined, um, you know, microscopic, I mean, subatomic particles. I mean, it's not even like you could say, oh, the nitrogen in here was exactly, you know, it's the same continuity as the nitrogen in the Big Bang. Because I don't know if there was nitrogen there. There may have just been free radicals floating around and then somehow, you know, they got together and they made a nitrogen, you know, atom. Yeah, there were all these subatomic particles buzzing around, right? So So there's something, you know, because people think of the Big Bang as the beginning of the universe, as if before the Big Bang there was nothing. There was lots of, there must have been something going on before the Big Bang. There was that big black hole, wasn't there? Didn't, wasn't there a big a black hole? And then it exploded and made the Big Bang? I don't know. 
But, you know, and then before that, how did there get to be a black hole? You know, all these light rays kind of, you know, absorbed into it. So I don't know, you know, the whole thing is changing all the time. The, the substantial cause of the sperm and egg can be traced back to the Big Bang, in which case the Big Bang would also be the ultimate substantial cause of our mind. If our mind came from matter and or came from our body and our body can be traced back to the big bang then the big bang and that black hole had consciousness and and or or it would be the substantial cause of our consciousness you know if we're saying either it has to be conscious the, the big bang has to be consciousness or if you're saying that consciousness came out of material, then all that stuff going on in the Big Bang and in the black hole is the substantial cause of our consciousness. Yeah. Does it have the ability to produce consciousness, to produce something that is clarity and awareness, that experiences pain and pleasure? Yeah. Do ions experience pain and pleasure? Yeah. Do ions bump together? Oh, we just got married. It's the happiest day of my life. <laughs> okay. In this case, consciousness would have to be present in the dense matter preceding the Big Bang since it was the ultimate cause of the entire physical universe, yeah, this big bang with the matter, with the, all the consciousness in it, then everything, the rocks, water, fire, and so forth, should be conscious and would experience pain and pleasure. Okay, so if you're saying that, that it came out of this matter, then, and, and that consciousness was present at the Big Bang, then when it all exploded, then all these different forms of matter, like the clock, should be conscious. Talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> do you experience pain and pleasure when I do that? My clock's, clock's purring. <laughs> But we would feel quite strange accepting that each and every rock, water molecule, or carbon atom has consciousness and is a living being. And also, what happens if you have, is would each drop of water be a different consciousness? Yeah. So then if you had a puddle of water. I mean, do you have a population problem? All those living beings fighting with each other for space, like living in Hong Kong or something, you know? Get these extra drops out of my bun. I'm squished. If we said instead the consciousness emerged from matter after a period of time, then did consciousness appear in all material particles? If not, 
What would make consciousness emerge from some particles but not others? So the scientists who say that the mind is a an emergent property of the body or the brain or something. So just yeah. So is each mat- a- atom in the brain a consciousness? And you know, how, then we have lots of consciousnesses emerging from one brain cell, which has all these different atoms. And then if somebody says, no, it only appears in some atoms, then why this atom and not that atom? Yeah, and why this nerve cell is, is a sentient being and that one's not? Along this line, if scientists could construct a brain, would that brain be conscious? Would it be a person who experiences happiness and suffering? Yeah. So you make, because they're trying to do that, you know, to make very thin slices of, of brains and then reconstruct them and everything and join them together and make, make a brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can just see high school science fair, make a brain. <laughs> you know, that is that going to be a living being? If our mind came from our parents' mind, or if our mind were a collection of different parts of the minds of people who died before our rebirth, many logical inconsistencies would arise. Because each individual has his or, own, or her own mind stream or mental continuum, we can remember events from our past and will experience the results of our own actions, not those of another person. So all of this would be impossible if our mind were composed of fragments of our parents or other people's minds. Okay? So you have one part of your mind come from mom and one from dad and one from you know, 6,000 years ago and one from the ape that, that you know, was the ancestor of, of you know, and one from, what came, what came, are we from the gorillas or, what is, the, you know, I mean, trace the, the ant, Neanderthals and the gorillas and or are you descended from an orangutan or from a monkey or you know um what then shouldn't I be able to remember what it was like if if I have uh you know a hundredth if a one hundredth percent of my mind was the matter from a monkey then shouldn't my memory be out of a hundred moments of memory, one of them is going to remember being a monkey. Yeah, it's strange. Or I'm experiencing the karmic result of, you know, both the monkey and the orangutan and the gorilla and and the, all the other things, you know, in the ocean that all contributed little parts of matter to that somehow became my consciousness. Okay, so instead we should be able to remember their past. Yeah. We should so 
you know, sometimes uh, you're named after a relative, yeah, and you, um, in Judaism, you're named after dead relatives, yeah. I know in Christianity, you can, you name things, you know, you're junior, you're named after your your parent while they're still alive. But then you say, oh, you, you were named after so-and-so. Then you start thinking, oh, you know, is am I somehow, that person was me and I'm the, you know, reconfiguration of that person's brain or, yeah. I mean, our, our mind can be very creative in making things up. Okay, so in, in which case we should be able to remember their past. Okay, so I should re- be able to remember, I was named after my great-grandmother. I should be able to remember what it was like in Poland at the end of the 19th century. We'll work on it. <laughs> we should also have the knowledge they have accumulated thus far in their lives and our emotional makeup would closely resemble theirs, but we see that this is not the case. Yeah. Then, okay, well, one part of me went through Ellis Island. <laughs> and then another part of me was a soldier during the Second World War. Uh, you know, when you look in your ancestry and... Uh, and trace things back, then then we should have all the memories of all those different people. If an external creator or prior intelligence created the universe, that creator would not have a cause because it would have preceded all existence. Without a cause, how could a creator arise? If it did not arise due to a cause, it would be permanent and could not create effects, such as the universe and the beings in it. A permanent creator cannot change, and creation involves change. That's the the main point, you know? That, that, That refutes the idea of any kind of external creator. If we said that the creator was both permanent and impermanent, you know, like the creator's permanent and doesn't change, but part of it changes and becomes the, the, you know, the universe and the inhabitants. If we say, too, that, <clears throat> um, that too is contradictory. For one thing, cannot simultaneously possess opposite traits. Okay, so something can't be both permanent and impermanent at the same time. If we say the creator prior intelligence alternated between being permanent and impermanent, that too would present problems. A permanent phenomena would need a cause to become impermanent, and no such cause exists. And an and a impermanent cause would need a cause to become permanent, and that doesn't exist either. Okay. Okay, so permanent phenomena would need a cause to become impermanent, and no such cause exists. Further questions arise. Why would a creator or prior intelligence create suffering? Yeah, why in the world would it do that? 
Someone once asked me, His Holiness is speaking here, do you see Pramnavartika in that last, you know, all the refutations we did last summer? Yeah, there they are in that, in that verse, or in that paragraph. Someone once asked me if neuroparagraphs, neuropathways could be the means by which karma was imprinted on the mind, such that the deeds of one life would influence events in another life. Okay, so our neural pathways are, you know, the conduits of karma. This is not possible because brain activity ceases at death. The brain does not come with us into the next life. So there could be no connection. The karma wouldn't connect. Applying these principles of causality to matter and consciousness, rebirth can be established without having to resort to blind faith or reliance on scriptural authority. Study chapter 2 of Pramnavartika. The only possible cause of our mind is a previous moment of the mind the mind of the person we were in the previous life. So we'll stop there and whoops, we'll talk about the reflection next week. Any questions? Yeah. Uh-huh. As someone online was asking, that what is it that exactly trend, um, transmigrates from one life to the next? Is it the mind or is it just the consciousness? Is it which aggregates go from one life to the next? Yeah. Okay. It's um, from a tantric viewpoint, you would say it's the clear light mind, you know, but it's not like the clear light mind is one thing. And there it is, the permanent clear light mind. Yeah, that was me in one life and goes up and goes kerplunk and it's me in the next life, you know, because every moment of consciousness is ceasing as it arises. Yeah, so we can't point to any permanent thing that goes from one life to the next. It's like if you watch a river you, you know, it's going to be very helpful. Stand and watch a river or a stream and see if you can find something that is the same that continues along without changing. This person was wanting clarification around um, how you're using the terms mind and consciousness because, like, mm-hmm. does discrimination and feeling and miscellaneous factors go to the next life or uh, those that I would say, you know, again, speaking according to Tantra, those things have all absorbed into the clear light mind. Mm-hmm. So you would say the potential for those other conscious uh, mental factors would, would be in the clear light mind. Yeah. And then a comment, um, the meditation on the continuity of consciousness was quite sobering and visceral reminder that what I call I or me is definitely going to come to an end. So what am I actually clinging to and what is it important uh, to be doing right now? Actually, what you say is I isn't coming to an end. It's transiting into your next life. So that's what makes what you're doing now important because you'll experience the results 
of the previous, the actions of the previous continuity. Another question. Uh, last week, um, it was explained that an Arya Bodhisattva is still a sentient being. Mm-hmm. From the Mahayana perspective, would an Arhat also be a sentient being? Yes. And if so, would the Pali tradition agree with that? Um, uh, probably not, because in the Pali tradition, uh, you know, when you become an Arhat, when you attain nirvana without remainder, in other words, at the point where you die and you shed the uh, polluted aggregates, because the aggregates, when you become an arhat, the aggregates that you were born with are still there, especially the body, you know. So, uh, and then when you shed all of that at the moment of death, then uh, it's not, uh, you know, if you ask people who practice that tradition, it's not real clear what exactly happens at nirvana. Some people say the continuity of consciousness stops um but other people say no that the, there's a content the continuity of consciousness goes on yeah if you say the continuity of consciousness stops then who is it that has nirvana and who's experiencing nirvana or what is experiencing nirvana okay so the buddha didn't talk a lot about like what happens after nirvana. So, you know, uh, at least my experience in talking to different um, people is there's not one thing that they say happens when you become an arhat. Can you explain a little bit more of the difference between blank-minded meditation and kind of what the book was talking about, the yeah. clear-minded? Can I explain... The difference between two things I haven't experienced. <laughs> um, well, I can tell you, blank-minded, you don't want to do. But <laughs> but conventional nature of the mind, you do want to do. So that's the difference between them. Now, the thing is, conventional nature of the mind, there there is an object. Yeah, you're perceiving the conventional nature of the mind. So there is an object to that mind. You know, blank-minded meditation, I don't know if they even say there's an object. But then if they say, if you say there's no object, then how can it be consciousness? Because consciousness only arises in relationship to an object. So there's some problems there. <laughs> 